We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A perfect start to the new season as Arsenal win on opening day and Spurs take a beating. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name's Elliot Smith, the Blackman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right, look, preseason ended. We were all kind of curious because we had a bad uh, bad finish to the preseason, obviously, losing to Brentford, losing to Chelsea, and losing to City. But we got some signings done, the window closed, and we start the new season with a win, and Spurs get hammered by Crystal Palace 3-0. I have a sneaky suspicion that by the time we beat Spurs in the Derby in a couple of weeks, we will actually be uh, ahead of them or level with them in the table. Uh, more on that anon. I kid, but I don't look like <laughs> those first three games sucked. We know why they suck. For some people, it's forgivable. For some people, it's totally inexcusable. But we did get a win, and I think it is important to enjoy it uh, when you can because I think this is going to be an up-and-down season. I think we are in an up-and-down moment for the club, and when you're up, be up if you can. But I think there is a difference between your emotional reaction to winning and your analysis of a performance. And so what we will try to do today, as we always try to do, is really enjoy having one and the things enjoyable about it and really analyze the various aspects of the game. And I do sort of feel like there's a game of two halves kind of uh, opportunity here that we can discuss the two halves because they were quite different. We had multiple debuts from new signings, uh, which was fun. Not debuts, but uh, appearances, some debuts. So there's, there's that to get excited about too. Just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Look, we are over our goal for our fundraiser, but the goal wasn't to stop there. The goal was to smash it. I'd love to get to 30 grand. Can you imagine 30,000 pounds raised for charity? Holy cow. Um, And not just charity, but for the Arsenal Foundation. Uh, If you haven't listened to uh, Drew Taylor's um, contribution in the pod a few episodes back, you can, but please go to our website, arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate. Give all through the month of September. Let's smash this goal. Let's have... The Arsenal Foundation look back and go, wow, that uh, that community over there at the Arsenal Vision Podcast, that's something special. And uh, we are really helping people who who desperately need it. So thank you for that. We do have the London event. It is sold out. But that Sunday after the podcast recording, which ends at half four, we'll be hanging out at the pub, the, the Victoria Tavern on Holloway Road, Road uh, for quite a while after that to hang out and meet everybody and talk and chat and discuss how the uh, the title's back on because by then it almost certainly will be. So here with me now is Tim. You can find him on Twitter. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. For patrons, we'll have a rewatch coming up probably as soon as tomorrow, and I think it's a really interesting one to rewatch, so hopefully you will join us for that. And uh, 
we now have moderators in the Discord. So if you've been scared to get in there, those mods are going to be cleaning that place up. You get in there. It's a fun place. Uh, Giant Gunner did his data review of this game, which I thought was really helpful to contextualize a lot of the stuff. So let's get into it. And I, I want to start the way we have been because I think it's a fun way to uh, start the podcast after games so that everyone can get off their chest what's on their chest. So I will start with you, Tim, and say... On this fine Monday afternoon, after our first win of the season, our first goal of the season, what is the one big thing on your mind following this game? Yeah, sure. I, I think for me, the one big thing about this game is that it's almost impossible to take it in isolation. And that actually, um, what, what we're looking at is we're trying to pull it a bit pull at a bit of a narrative thread and I know you said in the instant reaction you talked about is this kind of the first building block or is this a stay of execution and the truth is we're not going to know the answer to that for another couple of games um, and, and, and I think that's quite interesting I, I think it's almost more interesting to analyze this game in a couple of weeks time which obviously we won't do but um, you know to like almost like uh Stick, stick a, like a, a little tack on this and come back to it and say, what was that the start of the comeback? Was that the start of this new team forming and getting the kind of confidence building result? Or was it just, we beat a bad team at home? Um, but also I, I think, and I, I think we'll, we'll probably do some of that. I won't call it agonizing, but we'll have some of that, that discussion um, in this podcast. But I think what I'd probably also say is that if you change the context, if we'd got, let's say we got seven points, even six points out of the first three games, and we win this one nil with an XG of three, you'd probably just say, yeah, like good performance. Like if this came in the middle of a good run, you'd probably say, yeah, okay, um, not perfect, but we won one nil, should have been a lot more fair enough. And so it's, you know, that that's what I mean about this. This, this game seems to be, almost suffocated at the moment by the kind of the narrative and the context around it. Um, and it, it will be interesting to see how we feel about this in a couple of weeks, because I, I don't really know. I, I, I thought we played perfect. Like, I think we deserve to win. Like if this game had finished three nil um, per the XG, really, I don't think anyone would have said, Oh my God, that, that was, you know, Arsenal were lucky there. Like that's the kind of game it was. It was kind of, yeah, a bit iffy first half, came out a bit more in the second half, good substitutions, blew Norwich away. And when you're playing well, that's kind of seen as a as a kind of, you know, TCB, taking care of business. But um, when you're not, it's kind of seen as, well, it was only 1-0 against Norwich and we had to like really work hard for the goal. So it's, it's one of those games where it's almost pos- impossible to decontextualize it. Yeah, I think that's really well said and, and absolutely right, which is that, and this I'll come to this on my one big thing, but I think the hyper-analysis of performances is sort of becoming a replacement for the relevance of the result. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, but it is definitely the case that I can understand the concern about how we played with the neutral game state. From the 13th minute to the 43rd minute, the only shot we mustered was Kieran Tierney from like 30 yards out after a corner into Rosette. That that period of the game feels very much like what Arteta football has been in some respects, which is some pretty buildup, fairly organized, nothing particularly wrong with it, nothing particularly dangerous about it. Now, that's not what it had been in the first three games, but I think it's fair to say that a large stretch of, of Mikel Arteta's tenure has been sort of typified by that kind of football. The second half was very different. And so I, I do think how we hyperanalyze this being our sort of first, quote, winnable game, first game with the players back, or not all of them, but a good chunk of them back there, there was going to always be that extra 
extra scrutiny on top of this one, a little extra special sauce on it. Um, but let's drip some special sauce on this podcast by letting Clive provide us with his uh, one big thing. Clive, I know y- you contain multitudes, and so there is no one big thing with you. There are many, many big things, each bigger than the next, building on each other to the biggest thing. But what is what is one of those big things that you'd like to share with us? I, I, honestly, I've got so much to say about this game, and I hope we do a rewatch this week. and Tomorrow? To get, yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, on- tomorrow to suit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so many things. And I think this is a, a really, one of the most interesting games I've seen in a long time. And the key for me in the whole game, and I will say this, whenever you watch football, you heard me say it before, you walk into the room and you bring your luggage, you bring your suitcases. This is my context by which I'm looking at this game. Right, So people have decided what they want to see, who needs to do well, does that player play like they think he should, or does that player play like a position, a position the way I want it to be played? Right, So they bring in all different contexts into a game. And and so I watched this game after I knew the result. Um, I sort of had someone telling me the things going on. And I was on the sideline of my own coaching game. I'm thinking, crikey, ain't we scored yet? And I wasn't angry, but I'm thinking, but he's getting a bit nervy. you know. And then we scored and we win the game and it's all done. When I watched it, I could watch it really enjoyably. And I thought, okay, well, how do I want to look at this game? And I, and I just looked at the back five, really. and thought, there's basically four new people here. So, and I'm a big believer in what you do at the back door tells you what happens at the front door. And so let me look at this, the back door of this team and how they gel and are they what I think they are on paper. So obviously the white Tommy Asu thing, the white Gabrielle thing, we know Takira and Tierney, we've got Ramsdale in goal. How does this all look and feel? I thought, because that's new, that's fresh. The rest of it, we've part, you know, obviously the Congress new and make the Niles in terms of midfield. That's fairly new because Maitland Niles hasn't done that. Again, that's your back door. So how does this look? Because that's going to direct how we get to the front end of the pitch. And I was really, really, really encouraged by that. Really encouraged. And when I compare some of the players that played in those positions, so if you compare Cedric to Tomiyasu, you compare Holding to White, you compare Mary to Gabrielle, you know, obviously Leno, Leno and Ramsdale, and the centre mid, just compare El Nenny to Maitland-Niles and, and Laconga to say Sabayas. And that's how I judged this game. I was like, are we moving forward? And I thought we were. I thought in most of those positions, we were really quite good as a unit. And if you look at the game and say, okay, don't forget, we've all been listening to the word project for the last few weeks. If you look at the game and say, okay, this is the start of something. We just spent, we got five new players on the pitch. We just bought six new players. What are we all about? And that's how I looked at it. And I walked away with some really, really encouraging signs about the direction by which this team is going and how it's being built and the systems that we played, the system changes in the game, how we use double tens, how they worked and didn't work, Pepe's increased involvement. I looked at it and went, yeah, man, this is good. This is good. And I, and I, I can't wait to see more of it as we, as we learn about it. Right? And I'm sure we'll talk about it in more detail through the podcast. I think that's well said. I So my one big thing is is sort of, it's complex and it's emotional. And, and this is just me speaking about my feelings. And so if you don't feel this way, first of all, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> and secondly, I'm sorry, I can, I can only tell you what I'm feeling. <clears throat> what I'm feeling is I miss us being relevant and we need to be relevant again real soon. And we can only get there by winning football games. And this is a start. It's a perfect start. It is a win and off we go. But years ago, 
when Spurs lost the first game of the weekend and we won, you know, the next kickoff and City were playing later, United, or I'd be hanging on those results. What did Chelsea do? What did City do? What did United do? What did Liverpool do? To be fair, years ago, I didn't care what Liverpool did. But, you know, all right, we're only three points off, you know, and then they, they could lose. Next week, they've got a hard fixture. We got an easy one. You know, I wasn't looking at that. And I remember beating Newcastle once when Tim Krul was time-wasting and Van Persie stuck it in his face late. I remember, also against Newcastle, a Vermeilen late winner, middle of the season, ugly performance to beat Newcastle, watching the last 10 minutes behind the couch, can't bear to watch, get the winner, punch the air, can't believe it, heart-pounding. And I loved winning. Don't get me wrong. I loved winning. I like when Arsenal win. It's more fun. But it was more like, hmm, well, good. We won. Great. Good start. We're on the right path. And I think the reason we're pulling each other to pieces over, oh, Ben White, Saliba, Saliba, Ben White, or oh, oh well, you know, Tomiyasu's going to be great, or oh my gosh, Pepe's bad, Pepe's good, Aubameyang can still do it. No, he can't. Like, look, there's always going to be those debates, and they happen at every club. But I think we've been forced into hyperanalyzing things and, and creating these, these critical issues around things because where we are right now lacks the relevance that when those other teams drop points, we don't get that rush of excitement. I mean, I always do when Spurs do, to be fair. And so I want to feel that again. I didn't watch the last 10 minutes of this game behind the couch. And, you know, years ago you would have because what a fun last 10 minutes. We tore them apart. We had chances we squandered. What are you doing? How do you not score there? And then Pookie's into the box and Gabriel with a block. And, oh, it's a huge moment that saves the points. But it all felt a little bit hollow because it moves us from 20th to 16th. Now, it's early in the season. Nothing is decided. But let's face it, for all the debates we have and all the analysis we have, we got to be relevant again. we got to get to a point as a fan base where what Chelsea do in the late kickoff matters, where you know what Spurs did in the early kickoff matters. And I hope that we are starting that move back with all these new players now bedded in, you know, with a, with a new fresh start, a young back line averaging 22 years old and a front line that's got 21 and 22-year-olders uh, in it and you know our midfield now coming together. I hope that that march to relevance starts because the, the the missing ingredient now is having it really matter. There's nothing quite like football when it really matters. And and I guess, Tim, I'll just ask you, you were at the ground. Like, you've been to those games. You know that Newcastle game where Vermeulen had the late winner? You know the one yeah, where yeah. Robin Van Persie, uh, that one was, the Van Persie one I think was at the Emirates actually, a late winner when Cruel had been time-wasting and they get into a fight and it was a brilliant, but like, it, does it feel to you like that's, really, you know, a part of, of what we're going through as a fan base, which is that this, this, this period we've gone through that's been so difficult has led to the results, maybe not having that, that fire, that burning passion, that last 10 minutes that makes you want to, you know, pull your fingernails off. So I'm curious, like in the ground, did that, was that tension there the way it might've been under different circumstances? No, I don't think so. And, and to be fair, I don't think it would ever really be there against Norwich in September. Um, I remember us playing Norwich in 2012. We drew 3-3 with them at home and it looked like we'd blown well that we needed the top three to qualify for the Champions League because the bad thing happened and Chelsea won it. But um, I like I remember that being really, really tense. And I remember everyone, you know, felt like we'd lost a cup final afterwards because we drew that game 3-3. So I do think there's a limit to the extent which a game in September, even when you're going well, ever feels like that. But I do think over the in in the kind of totality of the last couple of seasons, yes, absolutely. Like compare how you we 
felt during the last 20 minutes of the most recent North London derby at the Emirates where Arsenal are 2-1 up with 20 minutes to go. And uh, I don't know if you remember Spurs getting a free kick, maybe an injury time on the edge mm. of the area. Um, and, you know, the, maybe the last kind of 15 minutes. Was it a shack of foul by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And, uh, you know, the and like the last 15 minutes at Old Trafford last season, like there, there have been too few games um, like that in the last few years. And, and, and yes, that is absolutely. And like, no, there wasn't that tension. But, you know, having said it's that earlier in the season, we were, you know, we were talking off mic and I was making the comparison to uh, the women's opening game against Chelsea, which... You know that that's a that's a title shootout. That's two teams that are competing for the title, and um, those results have an outsized impact on who wins it. So even though it's the first game of the season, you know the uh, Arsenal were holding a three-two lead with twenty minutes to go, and I, I you know, I had kittens, uh, and then I thought to myself, "Wow, I haven't felt like this for quite a long time." Actually, I forgot what that was like, and yeah, absolutely, and and like you say, the the kind of the results in the different part of the day uh, mattering and things like that and and watching other games. Because you know what happens, particularly towards the end of the season, you don't just support Arsenal, you support the teams that play the against teams your rivals, around yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, and, and, you know, at, at the moment, it's very much like we don't like Tottenham, LOL. And, uh, you know, to be fair, I think we will be and have been competing in the same part of the league as them anyway. But but even like going for sixth or fifth, that still doesn't like I don't think that's going to get anyone's juices going. Um, it didn't, you know, the last game of last season, we had the chance to qualify for the Europa Conference League and there was no like tension or excitement in that, whether, you know, whether people wanted to do it or not. So like, a- absolutely, that that is a very fair yardstick. Um, for how far we we should be coming, like particularly in the springtime. In the springtime, we should be looking at matches and not just looking at our own and watching other games and, and having that feeling of tension again, definitely. And if we don't, we know that it's because we're in a bad place. Yeah, and, and I'm just happy to get back. That, like, I'm not saying we won't get back there. I'm just saying I think that's that helps a lot because... It's missing. I, was it... Um, there's a famous picture of Arsene Wenger with his like head basically in Pat Rice's lap, right? Getting a cuddle from him, like yeah, so nervous. Is, isn't that the West yeah. Brom game when yeah. K- Kieran Gibbs, I think it was, made a like last-ditch save on the goal line to to basically save us top four? And I realize that's the last game of the season, not the, the fourth. But like, I think the reason I thought about this too is I listened to the Arscast, which is um, what I do so that I can have ideas to talk about on the podcast. And, you know, Andrew was talking about the policing of emotion, like, oh, yeah, how, you're celebrating it like it was a World Cup or, oh, you know. And I think the reason there's any policing of emotion is when the games matter, everyone agrees, right? When you when you win ugly against Norwich to keep yourself in a title race or something, there, there's very little policing of emotion. So I, I think there is a bit of just wanting to get back that urgency. And I, I'm not saying we won't get there, by the way. And I'm not saying that we won't get there this season even. It's a long season, you never know. I'm just, that that really resonated with me, that I want to get back to caring how the other results are going and you know, really watching the last 10 minutes of a close game behind the couch and, and feeling like this matters so that the analysis isn't so fraught because it's more about being lost in the passion as a supporter. We didn't, you know, we weren't fraught over the analysis of how we beat Chelsea in the FA Cup final or City in the semifinal, right? Because it just mattered. Um, Clive, let's get into the game itself, though. No, I'm, I'm oh, going to say oh, something. Yep. There. Oh, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think the game matters to me. It, it really does. And all the other results matter to me as well because I, I want us to improve and be better positioned. And I think 
you can the game can matter to you in different ways. And so I've accepted that we have taken out 30 players in the last two years and, and brought in I don't know how many. So I've accepted that we're in this phase of Arsenal's development and project. And so straight away, once I accept that, I look at the team in a different way and I say, okay, this is where we are. This is where we're going. We're reducing our waste bill. We're doing the renewal, which I've been shouting about for about three years. So now we're here. Okay, what does it look like? Let's hope we got it right. So now I can look at this and say, okay, what does this look like? Where's this going to go? How are we developing? And that to me is really exciting. It may be exciting for everybody else. I don't need to be in the top four to enjoy it, to be excited about football. I'm just excited about watching my football team. And I think, I think what I've noticed this year, particularly going to the ground, is that people are excited in different ways. Now, Tim goes a lot more than I do, but it's always been about the social. But the social feels even happier than it has post-pandemic that I've seen. It really feels like something nice around the ground in particular. And I like it. I like the new feeling around the ground. It may not last, right? It loses spurs, it could be all over. But I, I, I do think people are enjoying it in, a, in their own way. And I, I don't think it needs to be related to mattering because we're in the top end of the table. I think we all, well, I think if we're looking at this with our eyes open, we are on a, on a project, on a development path, which will, we all agree will hopefully lead to, the, to those you know, Arsenal May United games that really are for the title. But that hasn't been the case for a long time now. And that West Brom game, it was for fourth. It wasn't for first. It was also you know I mean? six seasons ago. Seven yeah, seasons and it was ago. for fourth. And, and I, I've often said that, you know, about Spurs have you know, potentially got a problem. They don't know it's here yet. We had a problem. We didn't realise it was actually right in front of us. People were sneaking up on us and we were qualified late. You know, I wasn't for first. Leicester game when when Danny Welbeck scored, you know, that's probably the last time we'd been near the top of the league. You know, this is this has been around for a while now. So we have to find our own enjoyment and find our own way to engage with this. And, and, I, and I'm obviously changed how I look at football the last 10 years. And I really, really enjoyed this football match and what it was instructing me for, the, for now and for the yeah. future. I really I, did. I just want to take issue with it in one respect. It's, I, I think you may be slightly misunderstanding my emotional connection, which is that I tremendously enjoyed it. I'm fascinated to see the player performances. I'm dying to discuss the tactical side of it with you when we rewatch tomorrow. I find all of this fascinating, captivating, you know, must watch, must analyze. I love that part of it. The jeopardy feels like it's missing at the moment. That sense of jeopardy that has you watch the last 10 minutes behind your fingers, behind the couch, you know, that gives you that punch the air moment when the ref blows up. Uh, that's all I'm saying, that jeopardy, then that feeling that now I can't wait to watch the rivals and hope they drop points. I just think that that is what I miss, the heat of terror defending a lead late, the jeopardy that comes with these points. And it's not about not enjoying the, you know, the performance yeah. intellectually. I, I, miss, the I, miss that, I miss that too. You know, I miss going to the old Champions League games, playing Bayern Munich and feeling sick before the kickoff. And, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yes. I miss yes. that too. <laughs> we're, we're not playing those football matches anymore. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. It just resonated with me because of this discussion that, that came out of this game, Clive, of is it okay to be happy about beating Norwich one day? It's always okay to be happy when you win. I said it was okay to be happy beating West Brom's kids in the League Cup. I think the more... The jeopardy I think, that's missing. I think the more relevant question... And maybe it's something we should do this week when we re-watch. I think 
it is okay to be happy. I think, in my humble opinion, it's okay to be happy. But some people, they're happy. They're happier holding on to the negatives, you know. And that's just the truth. That's just human being, human behaviours. And they need a little bit more convincing before they're going to be really happy, you know. Sometimes it needs to be Spurs or Man United win. Okay, now I'm happy. People just go through their own journey, and I can't. I don't want to criticise anybody for that. It's, it's it's personal. It's very personal to the individual and how they see football. Yeah. But I, I, yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, but I would just say I I really got a, a nice feeling from this game, and um, I hope I'd have felt the same if it was one one. I'm not so sure, <laughs> but um, but I'm just really glad. You know, we're talking about you know the two weeks that have gone previously where we were absolutely getting the piss ripped out of us. And at least we got a little bit of dignity back by getting back on the on the on the points board on the scoreboard, and now we can look forward and say, okay, what's this team all about? Which I'm sure we're going to talk about now. Yeah, and and that's the thing, right? So there, there's really two sides to being a football fan. One side is just the raw emotion of it, and the other is then all the really interesting, nitty gritty, tactical, performance based analysis, you know, um, player profiles, all of that. The tribalism, the passion, the intensity of it. I think all of us are here because of that. The other stuff, analyzing the tactics and the data and the player performances, that all springs from the former. And so without the former, the latter it feels a little hollow to me, and I, I'm ready for that former part to be ignited. I think the way the season started made it hard for the ignition. This, this gave me a little flicker of that, right? And so now I, I'm just hungry for that full ignition. And Tim, I, I think, look, this was a game of two halves. As as one hundred percent of football matches are, but uh, there really was sort of a a difficulty I think analyzing this game because the last twenty minutes of this game we produced like two and a half expected goals and absolutely battered them in a wide open sort of fun game. You know, for thirty minutes in the first half we had one pot shot from thirty yards and and it was a little more of the sort of traditional Arteta football in the sense of organized, pleasant enough, not dangerous enough. I kind of want to cover both why, you know, why that was the case, what was good and what was bad about it, and then, you know, what changed. But for starters, you know, I mean, I think it is worth pointing out that this season has been all about players having to play with basically strangers next to them every game. Um, There are a lot of debuts here. Ramsdale, Tomiyasu, White's first start since the Brentford game, Gabriel's first start of the season, Maitland-Niles' first start in midfield, Sammy Lakanga, I guess his second start or third, third start. Third, um, yeah, yeah. And and then up front, a, a little more quote unquote experience, if not age. So, how exciting is it for you though to look at this team that he put out and think we are well and truly on the path to the future here? The twenty mm. something year old back line, Ramsdale eras begin. You know, era begins the the. The bright young attacking players in Sac and Odegaard. The, the the vision of the future, at least, was spelled out in this game quite clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And I was trying to think of a time when it's ever been like this. Even like the the whole trolley dash in 2011, it was really only Murtasaka and Arteta that came straight into the team, and then Benayoun was, you know, he was he was a member of that team. Um, you know, and he he kind of came in and out a little bit. He was a bit more of a high level rotation option, but it really was only Arteta and Murtasaka. And because usually, you know, when you buy players at this 
point of a of a season with a few games in, you kind of ease them in. But there was really no point in doing that because easing players in assumes that there's some kind of foundation for them to work with or something they've got to get used to. But when you've lost three games des- and deservedly lost all of them, and frankly in two of them been absolutely beaten out of sight, there's no reason to to do you know like when when the whole house has imploded um you don't worry about putting new curtains up really. <laughs> no and, and and that's i was trying to think of a time where we've just put everyone in and 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 i you know before kickoff i thought yeah why not like i i kind of agreed with Paul last week on the pod where he said he didn't think Tommy Asu would start. I didn't think so either, just because we have other right backs. But um, well, boy, if I was one of them at the moment, I'd be thinking, God, this guy really doesn't rate me at all um, to put someone in who's like just come in um, from Japan. But um, yeah, it, it it really like it was total revolution. Um, it really was, and 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 I do find that exciting. Um, but I I also like. I guess I find it exciting just because there are so many caveats about the first three games um, and all the, all of those caveats have gone now and you feel like, like I, I hate the fact that the transfer window stays open for those first three games for this exact reason. And maybe this is, well, it's at least partially Arsenal's fault, but I think this is just how the market is in general. It feel, It always feels to me like those first games before the, and not just for Arsenal, for pretty much everyone. Those first games are just never about the football, um, and and it's I, like that's not just a comment on like the way football's covered. Like I don't even really think it is for the managers. So like Man City lose their first game of the season. What's it all about? It's all about Harry Kane because they lose to Spurs yeah, and they yeah. they couldn't get Harry Kane, and then they try and get Ronaldo, and it just feels like like it just doesn't feel like the season's started. Um, and I and I and I hate that. I, first of all, I think I, I really understand why the Premier League clubs had that trial period without it because it, it is really irritating. It must be really irritating as a coach and as as a fan. I hate it because I really want to be excited about the new season, and it and it really like it really puts like a bit of a like I hate this rhythm of transfer window, transfer window, transfer window, international break. I hate that. I think it's a really shit way to start a football season. And I really think um, it should be rethought. Um, and and so so I am excited, like because even regardless of what happens, I kind of always feel like this bit is the start of the season, albeit the the rhythms broken up by so many international breaks in October and November. But I, I've always had that feeling that the first game in September is when it when it all just calms down a bit and you you start to get that rhythm of games. And and yeah, I, I was really excited to see um to you know to see new players in the spine of that team in particular and. Maybe this is something we'll get onto, but we complained a lot about needing greater centrality in this Arsenal team. And when you've got Ben White and Gabriel there, um, and when you've got um, you've got Aaron Ramsdale there as well, and the way he punches the ball through the lines, I think his distribution has just been so so much better um, than Leno's. Yeah. I, honestly, I think it's. I, I still don't know how good a goalkeeper he is, but fuck me, distribution wise, he is so much better. Um, than Leno from what I've seen these first two games and and so that there was like uh, particularly the like I think the Ramsdale one weirdly was the one that excited me the most because that was the one I wasn't really sure would happen before the game I thought I thought it's coming I think it will happen quite soon 
but I, I I wasn't quite sure if he if Arteta would be this ruthless with Leno because Leno, I I don't think he's been terrible, but I don't think he's been good, and I think he looks like he's checked out psychologically. And honestly, I I thought this was the right decision. I think it's like look, yeah. you've you've backed this guy, you've bought him. Leno to me just looks like he's kind of checked out, and so. And, and when you're on a basis of zero points, nobody is sacred. And yeah, go for it. Why not? And so, yeah, it, it does. Like I know it's it's a hoary old cliche, but it really does feel like the season started. But also, I feel like in terms of look, the first couple of months of this season, at least, is going to be defined by how we judge Arteta and whether that becomes a final judgment. And now I really feel like, which is not to excuse him for the first three games at all, by the way, but like now it really feels like, okay, there are no excuses anymore. Yeah, and and it and credit to him because he said in the interview this week, I have the tools I need now. He didn't wait mm-hmm. to deploy them. He didn't spend 25 million on a goalkeeper and then say, well, we'll get to the point where Leno has clearly lost it. Ramsdale season started and it was time, you know, to commit to that move because we committed to that player and I think that takes courage. He didn't say, let me play Chambers at right back so Tomiyasu has time to adjust. He steps off a plane from Japan, he's better than our other right backs and he goes right in the lineup. White goes right in. Maitland Niles, you know, you want to show that you can do it. Here's a starting central midfield spot. He didn't have El Nenny, he didn't have Party, he didn't have Shaka, but you know, he he went with the young kid who's been saying he wants a chance, Sambi Lakanga. Like he made big calls and I think it shows that he he understands that there's no screwing around. There's no time to to sort of let these players get comfortable. They were brought in to do a job, and they were given that job to do. One thing that was interesting for me, Clive, watching this with the back line and Ramsdale, I guess. You know, we tend to think of players as individuals, and oftentimes we analyze their performances individually. And I do think in some positions that can be the case. You know, if you have Kylian Mbappe or Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi or Erling Holland or whatever, like you can drop that player into any team and make a difference. Yeah. But back lines are units and they have to fit together. And watching Tierney bomb on and Tomiyasu tuck in and, and head away, you know, uh, balls in the air that maybe White can't get to and Gabriel coming in and cleaning up for White so he could be more the distributor but maybe help him out when when they're in the box. This unit, 22, 22, 23, 23, like it feels really complimentary. And you could argue that, oh, when you buy a center back for 50 million, it shouldn't need to be complimentary. Well, whatever. The point is the unit looks like it makes sense. And I thought watching it in this game that the back four has an interesting combination of qualities that kind of does complement each other really well. I mean, do, do you think that that's the case that regardless of individual appraisals, that the the unit we built as a back four looks like it makes a lot of coherent sense in terms of its characteristics? Yeah, that's why it was my one big thing. I think it is all about the back line for me because this is our future. None of these are going anywhere. They've all got contracts. So this is it. You know, investment is there. This is it. This is the next four or five years. You know, and um, so how they looked, how they moved, that was it for me today. And um, I just thought, you know, Tommy Asu's the only one I hadn't really seen it over a full game. So the fact that he looks perfectly balanced off to Ben White, how he plays, how he transmits himself to the crowd, I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness, because on paper, he was he was the one for us. But in, in the way I see football, you know, we spoke about it before, didn't we? I like centre-back right backs I like people that stay in one side and push on the other may as well have been brought up with historical Arsenal teams always being a little bit lopsided so that for me was always 
the one I was hoping that would be like this. And Brentford sort of made us think, you know what, we do need something here. I saw it in the first Chelsea game pre-season. I thought, mm, we need something in that play. So to see that guy be, you know, the start of what we hope he's going to be was really, really exciting. I'm a fan of Ben White anyway. And I'm a little bit protective there, so I'm keeping my mouth shut when it comes to I see people giving him stick online. Again, I've seen him with my own eyes, and I, I'm there to footballer in there. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. And I'm so glad we haven't squelatched him and waited two years to put partners around him that are going to make him work, because we've done that before to centre-backs. I was listening to James today on the handbrake, and basically they talk about Lauren Koscielny, and, and Tim will tell you how many years that guy was basically a one-man defence literally without the support on occasions and when he had it it was even better so I didn't want that to happen to Ben White no way Gabriel I'm a huge fan of anyway I know he's had some dips last year but I think he's I think his potential is massive I really do physically I think it's massive potential just think how young these guys are what they're going to look like in two three years time physically you know they're going to be different and get a set of dumbbells in their hands and Tierney's you know the one that I think we've done well to backfill him. I think it's important we do because the way he trains and plays is all at 100 miles an hour and it's it's just not sustainable to have that much in that guy. So how we manage him, I think, is really important. And the way we're sort of playing now, you know, it's starting to get a bit clearer for me. Uh, I know you guys will probably talk about the four three three later, but the way we're sort of playing really is almost like a three two two three. You know, and I think that's, you know, and I and I quite like that. You know, the, the back four rolling around into a three with strong players, happy in the channels and happy in the air, but happy on the ball, all deep progressors. And then the two in front and then have your two number 10s available. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that. And then obviously Tierney pushing up with Pepe and et cetera and uh, Abanyang down the middle. And I think that's starting to look workable because we can move the football we got people who can pass the football from the back and this is stuff that's not going away this is it now and all those boys at the back can clip it they can clip it they can fizz it they can move it and they're good on it and they can drive out of their holes and carry it this is really interesting stuff now we may struggle on again on some days but the attributes and the profiles of the players i promise you are correct whether they can sustain a level of performance we, we, we're all going to see, we're all on that journey, but this looks well constructed and very complimentary. It's a very good word. And I'm, I'm, I'm impressed so far with what I've seen. Yeah. I mean, look, whether you agree or not, Clive, and I know you don't, <laughs> I thought there were some moments defensively in his own box where White had some not flawless moments, but Gabriel was there to clean up. What yeah. White did do yeah. was distribute the ball really effectively. And you can see from pass maps and data where his progressive passing helped. Tomiyasu, again, similar to what you might have expected. Tucked in a lot, played a lot in his own half. Um, defended well. Won all his aerial, or five or six of his aerial duels, I think. Um, helped clean up defensively. Did not get beat to the byline. You know, was very good at closing down space and, and being tight to his man. There were a few really fun moments. The, the volley, the the shot that he took, you know, volley, amazing technique. Took another shot with his, quote, weak foot. Very two-footed. Most of his attacking contribution came off set pieces. He wasn't asked to forage forward particularly often, which is not his role. Again, it's a complementary system. So I thought, good good start for White, good start for Tomiyasu. I, I think 
I want to get into a little bit, though, Tim, the, the issue of maybe what we weren't able to do in the first half that we were able in the second half, and I'm sure we can come on to Maitland-Niles' performance, too. The, the first half, kind of a bright start, pushed them back a little bit, didn't create anything clear-cut, and then, as I mentioned, I think from the 13th to the 43rd minute, no shots, just the one uh, Tierney shot from, from range. Some decent buildup, but if you look at pass maps and you look at that half again, you see a lot of Aubameyang sort of isolated we were very eager to try to play him in behind, but we didn't have a lot of sustained pressure around their final third where Pepe and Saka could get close together. It was almost a 4-2-2-2 in a way at times because Saka and Odegaard were dropping deep and central, and mm. Pepe was trying to sort of overlap up the right wing with Aubameyang alone up front. It was it was interesting, but it never really created much. And once again, we saw a lot of one striker sort of alone in and around the area without a lot of support. I'm curious if you have some thoughts on why we weren't able to be a little more effective in either sustaining pressure or carving out open chances in the first half, especially given, you know, the second half was quite different. Yeah. I, I think it's just because the conundrum of um, balancing that attack is, is really difficult. And I honestly can't see a way to do it, to be honest with you. Um, I, I just think we, we have good attackers, but I can't really think of a combination of them that really, really works, either because there are players who are similar and, you know, like Pe- effectively Pepe and Aubameyang, I think, are too similar to play together, but we don't have enough reliable goal scorers elsewhere in the team. If you have like, um, I don't know, if Ramsey is one of your central midfielders, you can probably sit Pepe down and say, okay, we've got goals from somewhere else. We need something else here. Mm. And, and the, you know, the, these problems just don't quite go away. It's like whack-a-mole. You get rid of one and another one pops up. And, and really it's like you kind of want... Um, you kind of want Aubameyang and Lacazette not in the same team, but you want like you want them to just morph into each other at certain phases of the game. So in the build-up, you want Lacazette. And then when the ball gets into the final 20 yards, you want Aubameyang, but you, you can't do that. Like Ar- Arsenal would be a much better team if it was 12 aside. Um, I really feel that. I really feel they need like another... They need probably a bit of a unicorn player who is both a reliable goal scorer and technically quite, you know, technically proficient. So, and in Arsenal scenario, that probably means Saka, Smith Rowe, Erdegaard, preferably all of the above, kind of, you know, providing more goal threat and scoring more goals because the the problem we've got is our three, but like our three best goal scorers, probably, I, I guess, absent Lacazette considering he was actually our top scorer last season, a Martinelli, Pape and Aubameyang, and they've all got the same floor. And and I just think, honestly, I think that's so difficult to work out. I really do. And and that's one area where Arteta has my sympathy a little bit. Um, I do think a lot of our issues were about ball progression last year. But when I look at this team now, Ben White's in there. You look at Party when he comes on, everything changes and... You know, the, the pass he plays in the build-up to that goal, like none of our other players have got that pass um, through the lines like that. So, like, I think the potential for the build-up play to get better is there. And I like what Arteta's tried to do because it's just so clear to me that that's what he's wanted from pretty much all of the players he signed. Like, you know, he signed Party, he signed Lakonga, he signed Ben White, um, you know, he signed Erdegaard, like, 
you know, he signed Ramsdale. Like he's done these things for a reason and it's not because he wants to keep going around the wings all the time. But I do think that Arsenal have a problem they probably can't solve in terms of the balance of that attack. And it's only going to be solved. We're probably just going to have to wait them out, um, quite frankly, like wait some of those contracts out. And I guess a really interesting discussion we'll have to start having around halfway through this season is what we do with Pepe because we're coming to the renew or sell um, kind of kind of part of his Arsenal career, and that's going to be a really interesting discussion. Because if we say sell, like how can we sell him? Who to? For what price? And yeah, I I I think this is just an area where things are just never. I, well, I say never with, with these players. I I think this is going to be a pretty omnipresent problem for the season. Unfortunately. Well, and that's why I think we are a team that really, really, really can do some fun things if we play with a lead. I think in neutral game states, when a team is in a mid-block or a low block, that's always going to pose us problems. And to be fair, that poses a lot of teams' problems. But you saw when we got the lead and they had to come at us, players like Aubameyang and Pepe come to life. I I think we have a lot more broken play, transition players up front who can thrive, and that's why I wish we had more of a press because I think if we could win the ball back with pressure then you'd see the best out of Pepe and Aubameyang. Clive, let's stay on Pepe for a minute. Because it is interesting, right? Like, when they were in their mid-block in the first half and he was dropping deep and trying to beat two men and bringing it up the right side and out on the touchline a lot, I thought that was his weakest period. And I thought we saw some of his flaws. His not seeing the underlapping run of Odegaard once, you know, wanting to beat a guy once and then having to beat him again before he delivers the ball. And then, you know, in the second half, when the game opened up and he was in the box... Like, I think the goal is all him. He's really unlucky. Tim Krul makes a stunning save that leads to the Obama angle. Um, nine times out of ten, that's just going in the far corner. And he had he winds up with six shots and six key passes, which is stunning. And almost all of it is in that second half when the game was more open and and more of a track meet. So what's your take on on the Pepe performance in terms of like how he can play in a neutral game state when we have to face those mid-blocks versus what he was able to do quite devastatingly? when the game was much more about transition. Yeah, I mean, I thought he was our man of the match. Um, I thought... Eight touches, I think, something like that? The most, yeah. most So this is what I'm talking about. When you when you watch a game and we're watching something develop, and Tim touching it there as well, and that's why I spoke about the back door, because this was all about Arsenal progressing the ball. So we've got ball-progressing defenders... We had Lekonga, who did a decent job. Maitland-Niles was quite vertical. But we all know we've got Thomas Partey to come, right? So, and that changes things. If we're having a game when Pepe has the most touches, I'm not sure we've ever seen that before. But I want Pepe having the most touches. I don't want Callum Chambers and Rob Holding having the most touches because I've seen that before. Because that's what we've done. We've kept the ball too long in the wrong areas. That is a huge step forward for this team. A huge step forward. Now, the fact that Brandon Williams had an absolutely excellent game against him. I mean, I thought he really overperformed in my eyes. He's a righty that plays left back. And Pepe sat him down a couple of times and he still blocked the crosses. I mean, I thought he did really well. I thought it was a it was a decent battle. It was a decent battle. And in the end, Pepe broke the game open. And that happens in football. You have to work your man, work your man, run him, run him, run him, run him in behind, tire him out until you get him. 
And it wasn't Pepe getting hooked off like he used to when he originally, when he originally came here because he got disinterested and disconnected and tired. He ran and ran and ran until he broke free. Right? So, so that is a good performance. And that's why I call in my, my man a match because I thought he was the most dangerous forward and I thought he was a player that Norwich would be talking about the most in their team talks. That's so how I look at it. Who are they going to be talking about? And I thought the way we got the ball to him was an improvement. Now, two new right sides of defence, which you know I've been talking about for a while, are distributors there. I haven't got the pass combination, I should do. But having that distribution in there to get the ball to him and his activity, I felt was much improved. People will focus on a couple of dodgy touches. Um, they'll focus on a couple of times when he got stopped by somebody or he missed the pass. Well, for me, I focus on the fact that he had the most touches because I want our best players having the most touches. I don't want our worst distributors and our defenders who can't move it having the most touches. And that's why we've been historically the slowest attack in the league. So again, developmental point, this is a huge step forward. Forget the dynamics of we're playing Norwich and we don't know if this is confirmed or not. It's a step. It's a step on how we want to play. And it's a, it was an encouraging one. I thought Pepe was right there in that. I have the same frustrations when he doesn't trap it. I have to say, I do think some of those passes didn't have a lot of appreciation on them, but there was a couple that I thought he messed up big time. And I was frustrated, but I'm carrying a few scars from the fact that we've got 0, 0.0 goals, right? So so you carry those scars because you want to get this goal. You want to feel better about the team. You want to get to 2-0 so you can chill out and, and work out where you're going for your Saturday night drink. That's what you really want to do. So when someone's delaying that, <laughs> you think, Cracky, come on, where's your touch? Come on, Ben, why, why are you getting moved in the box? These things, they linger with you, with, with the tension around the game. But I'm encouraged that he's got a level of involvement. And I always say the same thing. I go back to the old TIFO video. Creative attacking freedom is what he needs to be allowed to be to do. He needs to move a lot more have the most touches. If he has a lot of touches this every game, we're going to do much better than we have done historically and not be so Aubameyang-centric, which we have been in recent years. Yeah, and I just think, look, the pass party makes to get to Saka is staggeringly excellent, and it's what we missed. It's what we missed for the first half, and we'll come on to the midfield. But I think if you look at the way that goal happens, look where Saka is top of the box, right half space. Look where Pepe gets the overlap into the box. The pass Sack has to make to Pepe is four yards. Pepe was never within four yards of any forward in the first half. And I just think that the the shift in formation and distances, Emil Smith-Rowe making a really intelligent run, pulling people away, getting into the box. When Pepe takes the shot that Cruel saves, Oba's there for a tap-in, Sack is standing there if the ball comes to him, and Smith throws three yards behind in the box. We didn't have that many players in the box the entire first 45 minutes. So the changes really, really made a big difference, and I, I want to get to how we changed it because I think the midfield I, dynamic was, was crucial. One thing, yeah, please. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, when I watched the game, I thought it was a, wasn't just the first half. I thought the start of the game, we were quite good. Yeah, about 15 minutes, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 15, agree. 20 minutes. So it's a, there were two halves in the first half, and, they, and once Norris sort of got a breather for 20, 25, it sort of became a lot more even. Was, was that how people saw it? That's, that's how I saw I, it. I saw it that way. I, I mean, I think, look, there is a tendency to talk about something being bad that isn't bad. I think the first half for me was kind of what I said at the beginning of the pod, which is 
kind of like what Arteta football has been in my mind, both for better or for worse, which is looked organized, looked pretty enough. There was some good buildup, but never dangerous enough. And I think what it became in the second half, when we went to more of a 4-3-3, when we made the change, when Party could progress the ball between the lines, to Smithrow and Saka, you know, standing between the midfield and the defense, and the, the way that opened them up, we looked like a totally different animal. And, and I think that there's going to be a big philosophical decision that Arteta has to make about security versus attack in midfield. And that's why I think the midfield is the next really ripe area for discussion, especially given who was available and who will be available in the next game. But I think if there's one thing that's ripe for discussion, it's what are you doing about your privates? I mean, I think it's a fair question. It's certainly a question that that we talk about on this podcast, and you know what we care about on this podcast. And I think that you know that we believe there is no better way to take care of them than the Lawnmower 4.0. Okay, look. We're many, many months into this relationship with Manscaped now. By now, you know that Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof, has a long battery life, has a button lock, has a new LED light, has the inductive charging, has the different um, sizing insert things. That's the technical term that lets you do eyebrows or you know whatever part of your body you want. And you probably know there's a weed whacker by now that does your nose and your ears. So you know all that. What you may not know is that they have all kinds of like cool other products, tonics, sprays, powders, things like that that help you up. That, that They give you like this really nice um, accessory kit to keep it off. You're getting back to traveling. But I just, I look at certain things we do in our life. Like it's, it's funny, right? I, I, uh, I got a really nice electric toothbrush like a couple years ago. And brushing your teeth is a pain in the ass. You don't think about it a lot. You have to do it, right? I got this really nice electric toothbrush and now like when I go to the dentist, like, oh, your teeth still look great and they don't have to like pick at my teeth for two hours to tell me what a bad job I'm doing. It's like that. There are just some things we have to do and having tools that make it better are better. The Lawnmower 4.0 is a good tool for doing something you're going to do anyway. So just get it. Use promo code Arsenal Vision. You get 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Like th- this is easy. We can put an end to this. Once 100% of you have bought it, we don't even have to do an advertisement anymore. I mean, we, we probably will because we got to pay bills, but you get the idea. Look, go to uh, manscaped.com, use promo code ArsenalVision, you get 20% off in free shipping. 20% off in free shipping um, at the live event in London. Maybe we'll do a live demo. We will not do a live demo. I also want to tell you about Mint Mobile. Now, this is really important. Look, I have two young kids. They're not at cell phone age yet, but I look at my cell phone bill. I literally, it just got de- debited from my account, and it was $189. $189. And it's like, that. that hurts every time it comes out. But after years of fine print and contracts getting ripped off by these big companies, if we've learned anything, it's there's always a catch. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month. $15, no catch. The secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only by cutting out retail stores. So I took the SIM card they got me, popped it in my phone. 5G, no problem. Clear, clear service, no problem. And I'm like, what, what's the what's the difference? This is $15 by what's $189. It's premium wireless for $15 a month on the largest 5G network in America. You get talk, you get text, high-speed data, unlimited talk and text. And if you're not 100% satisfied, they got you covered with a seven-day money-back guarantee so you can try it make sure it works. Switch to Mint Mobile, get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash vision, mintmobile.com slash vision. And get the plane shipped to your door for free. Just pop in your SIM. You're ready to go. Mintmobile.com slash vision. Do it now. 15 bucks a month for wireless service. You can't beat it. Okay. Clive, that enough of that? Yeah, that is enough of that. And um, I will say uh, quickly on, on Pepe to finish up. Interesting. 
Um, Smith, uh, Tommy Asu was the highest pass combination to him. But the next two, to your point, was Smithrow and Party, which is interesting given the fact they're only on the pitch for a short period of time. Yeah. So that that probably gives to both our points really that we we're doing some good stuff there to get that to get the ball to our danger men. Yes. Yep. So, okay. Um, let's do this, Tim. Let's let's talk about the midfield. I don't think it's funny, right? Because you look at this team and you're like, this is the team we get, you know, the team we put out against Norwich is the team. But the irony is the two starting midfielders are not the team and midfield is the game in a lot of ways. And so we started with Sambi and we started with Maitland Niles and we got a really clear look at that system with those players versus the four, three, three. We went to later, if you want to call it that one thing that I thought was interesting, and I don't know if this is by design or not. So there was an interview with Martin Odegaard when he was at Madrid um, you know, he's walking on the pitch at the Bernabeu and he's talking to, I want to say Guillaume Balaguet basically says like the coaches work with me a lot. Cause I like to come to the ball. They want me to stay up the pitch. Don't come to the ball, be available between the lines where I can, you know, cause more damage. He was dropping deep a lot in this game. He was coming back and dropping in. Now Arteta said Odegaard can do that. He can drop into those pockets. So I don't know if it's by design or a little bit of what he talked about at Madrid of just coming to the ball too much, but I really felt that we did not have those distances for Maitland Niles and Sambi the same way we did with Party and when Smith Rowe came on. I'm curious how you felt about the Sambi Maitland Niles partnership. Do you think they were victims a little bit of just all the pieces not fitting together right? Or do you think that that they both could have been a little more effective in the way they they tried to attack Norwich? I I think in essence both of them probably just needed a senior partner. I think Maitland Niles' performance is probably much better if he's playing next to Party and Ditto Laconca. Um even if Xhaka, I mean, I, I'm not so sure about Xhaka and Maitland Niles, whether, you know, how much that would have worked for for Ainsley, but um, you know, even Xhaka and Laconga, I think, probably would have looked better. I think effectively we just had two junior guys I, I know Maitland Niles is 24 and not junior in age but in this position he's junior he's not played it that many times and they've been quite far apart really um, albeit he played most of his time at West Brom there so um, you know he, I, I guess he's got some recent Premier League experience there but really I I think and, and it was just down to the circumstance really um, I think they just they both needed that senior partner there, and you know when that happens, and you don't have that senior partner, you're both looking at each other, and you're kind of thinking, well, I'm not that guy, <laughs> and I'm not that guy either. So I do think there was a little bit of that going on. Um, I I tend to think that yeah, Erdgaard dropping a bit deeper was probably a bit more about just not quite being able to get the ball, and and look again. We got the perfect illustration, didn't we, with that party pass in uh, in the build-up to the goal, which is an absolutely incredible pass. I'm, I'm really surprised it hasn't been talked about more. Um, and Saka deserves credit for the way he controls it, right? It's kind of like a little mini Cruyff to get pointed yeah, forward right away. It's yeah. just really good from both of them. And that and that Saka's strength as well, by the way. His, his, his I guess his superpower is the way he gets turned so quickly. And that that's how he got his place. That's how he got into the England team during the Euros, because particularly when you're playing on the counter, that's such a huge weapon, the way that he can just like take the ball on the half turn and not even a half turn. He makes it look like a quarter turn, but he can, he can go from facing his own goal to facing the opponent's goal very, very quickly uh, within the space of one touch. And yeah, that's, that's his kind of his strength. And that, that's why, he he looks quite good on the right i think taking the ball there like that but yeah i mean maitland not Le- 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 looks like he has the potential to have that kind of pass 
um, but probably not yet. He's probably not, um, maybe psychologically as much as anything, not quite in that place where, yeah, I'm going to play that ball. I'm, I'm going to really try that. Um, I, you know, I'm not, it's because it, it, it is as much like most footballers, I think have got the technical ability to pull off a pass like that. I guess it's the speed of execution, but it's also that kind of, yeah, I'm going to try this. Like that looks like a really hard pass, but I'm going to try it because I think I'll pull it off. Um, and so that, that just gave you a real illustration, I think of just the step up, probably not just in quality, but in seniority of a player just going, no, nope, I'm the senior guy here. You know, Arteta talked about party, you know, he's got to be the boss. I mean, that was a boss move in more ways than one. And that's what like, we really, really need that because we play with a double pivot. Um, that we we really and and I think that's what Arteta is getting at as well when he's saying you know party has to be the boss because effectively I mean yeah Erdgaard's a number ten and he drops back and all of that but really we're playing with two central midfielders um, and that means we can't have like a Ramsey or an Özil really there um, so we need one of those guys to do something with the football uh, particularly if they're not going to score goals and. And and I guess that's that's kind of been um, my problem with the midfield over the last few years. That, that I I don't think we saw this from Maitland Niles and Lakonga, but the fact that our midfielders don't play in midfield, um, the fact that mm. like one of them is basically a quasi left back, and like the other ones left, like I I think that's got to stop. I think we need two midfielders in midfield. Um, quite frankly, and and I think at least we got that from Lakonga and Maitland Niles. Like I didn't look at them and think, "Oh my God, they're getting bowled over here. They're getting played through," um, no. or it didn't it didn't look vacant to me. Like it's just neither of them had that real kind of that real kind of uptick of quality you need, particularly against the deep block. So I, I think it's a little bit circumstance, but just a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, we we needed someone like Party there. Yeah, I mean, well, and there's a reason we paid what we did for him, and he's in his prime, and yep. Samby is 21, and, you know... Hopefully I mean, he'll get Mait- there. Yeah, Mait- Maitland-Niles is really sort of trying to figure out who he is as a footballer. I mean, Clive, the interesting thing is I thought Maitland-Niles and Samby had kind of opposite games in a way. Lakanga receiving things on the half turn, little clever punched balls five yards forward to, to Odegaard, and stepping around pressure a little bit without ever really hurting them. You know, got it out to... Pepe or or Tomiyasu got it out to Tierney. But Maitland-Niles kind of had the opposite game, I thought, which is he had some sloppiness. He had some some giveaways in you know, pretty easy situations, missed the simple pass quite a few times, but also seemed really eager to try to get Aubameyang in behind. You know, played the ball over the top a few times. He had one that was really frustrating because he had Oba running in between the center back and the full back, and he, he played it on time. It was the right pass, but he didn't hit it right, and it sort of took... Oba out towards the corner flag. And, and to be fair to Aubameyang, that's the one where he gets the cross into Pepe and his shot is blocked brilliantly uh, at the far post. But I'm curious how you sort of look at their performances because in in Sambi, I saw a confident, controlled, sort of polished performance without being threatening. And in, in uh, Maitland-Niles, I saw some encouraging attempts to be more direct and threatening, but also maybe just a, a lack of the, the kind of polish and, and clean passing you'd want from a midfielder. How did, how did you see that partnership? Because, you know, I, I do think a lot of the this, this struggle we had creatively in the first half might be down to that. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I don't, I don't think it's a partnership for the future, but it's an example of the, the raised floor, in my opinion. Um, we got two players in that really have taken the Sabias El Nini role. 
And so do I like this better than Tobias Leonini? I think there's an argument there. There's a debate. Right? So, and the top two in our centre midfield are, are going to be Shaka and Party, whether people like it or not. <laughs> That's going to be the top two. So, so I'm looking at this thinking, yeah, you did okay. I didn't feel that we were vulnerable. I thought he moved the ball quite. He's, he's a short passer, a combination passer, and just strokes, he just strokes the ball between the lines. And he did go out to Tierney a few times. He sometimes think, come on, mate, just put a bit of zip on that ball. You don't know what you could be. But it was his first game, maybe his first ever Premier League start in centre midfield for Arsenal. It could be in the Premier League. I thought he did fine without tearing the house down. And I, I think it's a good day for him. I think what I'm looking for in that sort of square in there is I'm, is I'm looking for Saka and Odegaard to be the escape artists we know they are with the ball. So Tim Dabsby, right, Saka, the way he bounces around corners and turns either way, doesn't matter. He can escape from from crocodiles, right? He just gets around the corner brilliantly and then dries really quickly and people and freezes people. So he has that ability. And Odegaard's the ability, he takes it and he can turn it, chop you, keep you off balance, chop you different ways. And basically, he you know, he really does give you that ability to secure it and then people drop away. And so when I was watching this game, I was thinking we were going, we were very excited to go back to front. And because we could see the space around Hanley, who's a little bit sluggish, though he's improving actually. I thought he was a terrible player a couple of years ago. And I think Arsenal fancied Aubameyang and Gates in pace-wise. And we were a bit greedy going back to front. I felt we needed one more pass, you know, and I felt we needed some ability, just one more pass to slip Aubameyang in over 15 yards, not not 30 yards, if you see what I mean. And I, do, I think we were th- too focused on that, Clive. I, I, I think that, like, we just seemed so intent that we were going to play Oba in behind. I, did, did you feel that there was, like, that was the instruction? or did, didn't Because it, it felt like we were doing a lot more than we ever usually do. Yeah, I felt we were obsessed with it, actually. Sometimes the team shows you space and grass and you think, I'm going to take it. And I say to my own team, don't get obsessed by the grass. Don't get obsessed by, could we play a not flat pitches, by the hill, by the slope. And you sort of over here. get obsessed own. with the Emirates grass because it is beautiful. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? Sometimes you get obsessed by, you think you've got a weakness and you overdo it. Well, sometimes you just suck people onto you and then go X a couple of passes and then go through the lines. And so if I'm looking at the, the two at the base of midfield, I'm thinking, okay, I know, I just need a six, six out of 10 from you today. This is all new for you. And the Tim just pointed out in the channel that he played against uh, Man United. And he did. And he was man of the match in that game, Tim, if I remember rightly, against Pogba. He was enough, really, yeah. really mm-hmm. good. Yeah. He was really, really good. And so a uh, lot of people wanted to see him in there since then. I know he played in the FA Cup against Southampton in there and did really, really well. My view on him is he's okay in there. He's okay. Maybe we don't need to get people from Real Madrid when I think you can do an okay job in there. That's just my opinion. But I felt that the two top boys in Saka and Odegaard, I wanted them to scream for it more. I'd be, one of those, I'll be if I was in the ground, I'd be able to be really convinced by this. Can you two get on it? Can you demand it? Turn around and play in our crown jewels in behind. I felt we were a bit obsessed. Now, was that a fault of the defenders? Was that the fault of our... Maybe we got too inexperienced centre midfielders. We're going to miss them out, and then try to get playing their half, you know, and get the get the second balls. I'm not quite sure. Yet. I need to rewatch that again and again. Um, but I was looking at Odegaard and Saka and thinking, "Come on, guys, get on it." And it's quite interesting when Smith Rowe got in, and, and there was a little bit more options. Everyone got on it. 
and everyone started to look good. So did Norwich do a good job against Saka and Odegaard? They fouled Saka a lot. You know, they really smashed him. And so they stopped that flow going through there, marked them tightly and forced us to go longer, and which we did to not great chance creation success, if you see what I mean, although we were, were sort of in charge. So that's how I saw it. And I thought it was, that's why I found this game really interesting. I think it, it created problems for us, which we eventually solved. I thought the selection was good at the start. I thought the substitutions were timely. The system mm. change was timely. This was really interesting stuff. Almost as if Arteta has had a self-appraisal, looked at the feedback sheet, looked at his 360 and said, you know, I need to be better at stuff like substitutions and system changes and doing it timely, you know, and not playing party with one leg at Spurs. Do you know what I mean? He looks like he really has taken his self-appraisal on really well and communicated this well before and after the game and and then executed. So yeah. I'm I'm interested by this. Really, you, you said something really really relevant here. I think that the fact that he was willing to keep party out and go with a totally untested, young, inexperienced midfield and Maitland Niles and uh, Samby, I think shows some growth because you can't rush party back and lose him again. Even Absolutely. though he wound up being the savior of the game in some ways. And Tim, like the interesting thing is the the way the dynamic changes because if you look at the pass map from the first half, Bukayo Saka is deeper than Maitland-Niles, than Tierney, than Odegaard. Odegaard is deeper than Tierney. You're just about on plane with him. You know, there's Aubameyang, top of the box by himself. Pepe is deeper than almost all the midfielders. He's at halfway line in terms of average touch position. Second half, Bukayo Saka's average touch position is basically right on top of Aubameyang, top of the box. Pepe is the corner of the box. Like, we totally shifted where players were playing. And, I, you know, I'm sort of wondering if maybe it was just that Saka and Odegaard didn't have a great first half either because, like, I think it was meant to be a box. I think it was meant to be like mm. Maitland-Niles, Sambi, Saka, and Odegaard. And that they would get the ball, and then they'd be there, you know, sort of in those more central spaces right next to Aubameyang, and they could play one-twos and stuff. But that never really materialized a lot of times because I think we bypassed them. We went out to Tierney, we went wide to Pepe, or we went right over the top to Aubameyang. So maybe it's that Saka and Odegaard didn't thrive in that role or the midfielders didn't feed them that that well, but you know we can start to shift to the second half and what changed, but just quickly, those two players, Odegaard and Saka, you'd ordinarily think of them as very dangerous, sort of end product-y, you know, get it to the final third. They really didn't do that in the first half, and I'm wondering if you think that was about the midfielders not finding them in those positions or maybe them not taking up dangerous enough positions to, to get it into that attacking you know zone and get close to Aubameyang. Yeah, yeah, a, a little bit of both. And I think also, I think what's becoming clear under Arteta as well is there's a long game and a short game developing. Like a lot of the players we've bought can wallop a ball 60 yards. And, and I really don't think that's a coincidence. And that's why David Luiz always played. That's why he stayed patient with Mustafi as long as he did. Because one thing Mustafi could do was hit a, hit a long diagonal. He was actually quite good at that. And so... Arteta probably kept faith with him a lot longer than he should have because of that. So there's definitely an element to which he wants to mix up between a long game and a short game. And I think we just got that calculation a bit wrong. You know, you guys have just spoken about how we probably became too obsessed with trying to put Aubameyang in behind 
And, you know, as Clive said, we, we were trying to hit that pass somewhere between 30 and 50 yards rather than, you know, 15 yards. And, and, and it's just, it's just fine tuning. Right. And I think it's just something that comes out of starting a load of new players together. It's just about learning when, when to play the short game and when to play the long game and mixing that up properly. Like, like City do it. City, City will kind of, they'll play it around the back, play it around the back. You'll start to press them and then they'll go, thank you very much and drop it over your head. Edison will just wallop it 80 yards. And and that's that's kind of, that's the formula I think we're trying to go for. Um, and and we, just, we just didn't quite get that equation right in the first half. I think we just concentrated a little bit, a, a little bit maybe too much on the long game, um, but also the, the distances just weren't there for the short game either. I think you're right. I think it was kind of meant to be a box, but we just didn't have that that kind of spacing correct between the players and and we got it better in the second half and again the goal you see it that that's you see the box shape you see the pass through the lines you see Saka sta- you know standing at the top of the box like it, I, I think it was just a case of fine tuning Tim did you see in the ground did we did we miss those passes to Odegaard and Saka? Were they like flapping arms or were they no. in spaces and we turned away? Because I thought they didn't quite show their feet enough. But I'll I'll, I'll take my view from you in the ground. You know, what did, yeah, what did you think? no, no, I don't, I don't think so. To be honest, I think it was just a case of we were going long quite a lot and the distances weren't there. Okay, there, there definitely weren't times where I was looking, going, play him in, play him in. Like that, that wasn't happening. No, right, top man, cheers. Mm. Well, so let's talk about how it changed then. I mean, Clive the. The interesting thing is it wasn't just about changing midfield. So Maitland-Niles is essentially subbed out of midfield to move to right back. Makes sense. Tomiyasu just arrived, probably not ready to go the full 90. Looked like he was starting to blow a little bit. And um, uh, Sambi replaced for party. Smith-Rowe comes on. And, you know, it is interesting. Smith-Rowe is a player that I just... I just think it's sensational. Old school, you know, everything goes forward. His runs are forward. His passes are forward. His carries are forward. He's always driving forward. And it gave us just a lot of directness and 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 urgency to move the ball forward. I think that that word is one that's been sticking in my mind a little bit about the way Arsenal attack urgency. There is a sort of, not casualness, but patience that at some point needs to give way to an urgency to drive the ball forward. And, and Smithrow gives us that. But Thomas Party really is the oil in the engine, and you saw it so clearly with that pass to Saka. But so many times, the the direct, progressive central passing that he does totally changes the attack. And I'm curious if you saw it as being a four three three that we switched to, or just that the players we brought on were more inclined to take up aggressive attack oriented positions. They were just you know told to get further up the pitch. Yeah, it could have been a four three three. Could have been a four one four one. I I didn't. I see a lot of people talking about that uh, over the weekend, and I, and I didn't really. It didn't really hit me like that. All I saw was the daddy come on the pitch, and when he comes on the pitch, everyone gives him the ball because they know he's good, and that happens in teams when good players arrive. They just get it, and then, and then people start moving, <laughs> and that's that's all I saw. Um, and I just think, well, this is a this was an important moment for me because when we signed Thomas Party, I wasn't sure if he was sold. You're going to be the leader of a youth project, you know. And this was the first time he's been on the pitch with these with these new signings, and I was really interested to see how he was and engaged that he was and the role that he took up and the seniority that he took up. 
And I thought him and Anna, Anna Bamyang both did well in that regard. I thought they really were like a couple of captains, you know, on the, on the pitch when they were on the pitch together. And I thought that's a really interesting dynamic and one to see. Again, it's all, it was a start point. This game was all about the start of the new team and is the new rage. And by the way, this team is manager agnostic. It doesn't matter. Look at the length of the contracts. That's all you need to look, look at. And don't worry about the manager. The manager will work or he won't work. The relationship will work or it won't work. But these players are here. They've all got chunky contracts, all of them. You know, have been signed or re-signed by this management and by this executive. So this is why I was really interested in, in that connection. Thomas Pyatt, for me, you know what I think. You know, I <laughs> so I, I better keep quiet because people say I get too emotional and excited about certain players. So... I, ju- I just think he's he's very good, and everyone. I do as well, it. but in the other direction. That's <laughs> <laughs> and everyone knows it, and that's why Chelsea smashed him off the pitch preseason, and that's going to be the big issue. Really, is him not getting the old Jack Wilshire treatment? You know, holding it too long, getting smashed from the side, because everyone knows if it comes out of his boots, we're you know they're in a bit of trouble because not how he, he can just do a lot of things to solve problems. He can he can beat you, he can chop you, he can switch it both sides, he can carry. But the real thing is he got, which is unique to him and maybe Thiago, is the disguise by which he plays. And I think he beats people with the eyes. And that pass was just whipped it around with the eyes. And that's the stuff Thiago does. And he's always been the statistical. Similarly to Thiago, in my view, they look physically different. And it's that player that gets us going. Now, I see a lot of people talking about um, Party as a potential six. Well, I think... I think he's got more in his boots than, say, Fabinho. I think it's brilliant as a defensive six. I think he could easily be an eight in a 4-3-3 and good luck trying to stop him further out the pitch. You know, I think mm. how we sit behind him will be interesting. And that's where Lekonga looks very interesting as a six. And if you put parties one of two eights, then Arsenal start to look like a team that can go to places away from home with that type of system. You know, and um, so again, the interesting thing about this whole game was not just what we did on this day, but what the potential system changes and tweaks with these group of players we can actually do going forward. You know, three at the back. You know, it's all it's all available to us now because the Pacifics are on the pitch, and they don't look like idiots. They like they look like players are going to get better. So that's a good start. Yeah, <clears throat> it's more than a good start. It, it, I mean, it's really encouraging and. Tim, as we sort of wrap up here, I, I think the interesting thing is what this game turned into, which was kind of a track meet at the end. I mean, I, I'm so torn on how to feel because in a way, there was huge frustration in the moment that we didn't find a second goal with all the openings we created. Some were, you know, a bit unlucky and some were wasteful. And by the same token, Norwich had their best chance of the game during the period where we should have just been comfortable. The irony is if you switch these halves of football, you would say it was as masterful, masterful a performance as you'll ever see. Yeah. Blow the doors off them in an open game early, get the goal you need, and then just shut it down and give them nothing. But, but it wasn't that. We shut it down and gave them nothing. We scored the goal to take the lead, and then the game was kind of wide open, and it could have gone either way. So I'm curious how you look at that that final period. You know me. I like attacking football, so give me, more, give me all that you can take. But, I mean, there was a bit of wastefulness. Are, are you encouraged by the way it ended? Do you think that that there's some worries about the the lack of structure late in the game? How do you approach a, a final 20 minutes or so that sees us rack up almost, I think, over two and a half expected goals? Granted, like 0.9 of it comes on the Aubameyang goal. But like, 
but also maybe gave them a few more opportunities than you'd like to see in that circumstance. Yeah, I I think it was the right thing to do. I I think when you're at home to Norwich, you're within your rights to think, yeah, we can get a second goal here and we should have got a second goal. I mean, yeah, Norwich had a chance, um, but it, it's almost impossible to go a whole game without giving a chance away. And that was pretty much it. I know there was a block from Cedric at the end, but... You know, that's just what happens when you're 1-0 up with a couple of minutes to go. That's just the way the game goes. I, I think we were absolutely right to go and chase a, a second. We were we created enough to do so. And at the moment, given the issue that chance creation has been for Arsenal, um, I, I'm quite happy with us creating chances. That, that, to me, is a positive step forward. I think the other thing is, as well, you know, we made the substitution to make... Um, and and this was this was where it was very I don't want to say on Arteta actually because maybe now he's just got the players to do this but he was able to do that thing where you know well it was a slight tweak to the formation but like what Arteta doesn't want to do is you know the old Wenger substitution of like fuck it let's just put four players up front um, like he doesn't really want to change the system but what he'd like to do is just give the system a bit more impetus which is which is why I probably think he might have paused over the decision to sell Joe Willock because I think Joe Willock is would have been like a, a nice like I don't think there's good enough reason to keep him and turn down the money but would have been like quite a nice player to put on with 20 minutes to go and and it means you don't have to change your system it just means maybe you take off Elton Enny and put on Willock and then the system's the same, but the impetus is very different. But but we changed it, so we had like that four three three with Party Smith Rowe Nerdgod. So it kind of stands to reason, both given the game state and the personnel that we had on, that the game would become more open. Um, and that that certainly suited us more than Norwich. Like granted, Norwich could have got a point in the end. I still think they'd have been incredibly fortunate to have done so. The balance of play suggests that what should have happened is that Arsenal should have got a second and third goal. And if we if we approach all of these games like that, that is what will happen more often than not. We'll get caught once or twice, and we'll feel really shit about it, and we'll moan about it because we've drawn one one at home to you know someone in the bottom half. Newsflash: We used to do that when we were good as well. That's just that's just what happens sometimes. But <clears throat> yeah. generally speaking, that is how how we should approach these games, and I, I'm I I take that as an encouraging sign. I, I totally agree. You're not going to find any hypocrisy from me here. The plus EV way to play these games against these weaker teams is batter them and outplay them. I mean, if you want to give up 0.5 XG, that's fine when you've created 2.5 XG. 95% of the time, you're going to win that game. And I, I think it's the right way to play. I think it emphasizes where the talent is on the pitch. I loved watching it. Whatever frustration I had in the first half, that second half was a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Put a lot of, for me, gloss on the performance in terms of really enjoying it. And I, I think there's a lot to work out there. but. I think the next piece of this, Clive, and yeah, I, th- I think we can sort of wrap this up soon, but like, uh, I think Odegaard is a player we brought not just to be a connector, mm-hmm. but a final third guy. And for me, that's really the next piece because you saw, I-, I think you saw so clearly what Smith Rowe added when he came on. And Pepe got closer to the box and was devastating. And Aubameyang obviously scored the goal. Saka was influential in the goal, popping up into an interesting area. Odegaard was given the role to sort of drop in a little closer to party. And some of this is role. I mean, maybe, you know, what Arteta's comments are hinting at is that he sees Odegaard maybe as just a more progressive central midfielder for the long term or someone who can kind of bounce between those roles. I'd like to see him give us that little bit of magic in the final third, create some more chances 
and, and maybe even be in the box to score goals. Maybe that's not the role he's being given right now. I'm curious how you look at that because, you know, obviously he, along with White, was really the marquee signing. I think the player that we hope will be influential in addressing what we see as deficiencies in attack. So how do you feel about the role he's been given? I think it's it's still a little more connector than than final third guy. I think it's just the way the game went today. I think I think because we were going a little bit longer, I think he's thinking, you know what, I need to come deeper. I can't stay here. I need to come and get it off him deeper. And that's what he, what he probably thought. He probably felt a bit missed out. And he's not really a second ball guy. We sort of defended almost in the 4-4-2, so he pressed a lot from the front. But he's not a guy you can go and hit a Bamiyang. He's going to fill up behind him and get second balls. You know, he's going to want to come and get it. Um, when I look at players, Elliot, all of them, I look at the things they don't do very well. And I ask myself, is it coachable? Right, so and I look at Odegaard. I think maybe in this game you didn't quite find your boots in exactly the right spot. But can you play? Can you can you strike that ball on your left foot? Absolutely. Can you be encouraged to get to just do some one touch wall passes and bang shots first time? And can you do it? Absolutely. Of course you can. You know. And so I I don't worry if it doesn't happen in in one particular game. You know, I I worry about things that people can't do if they can't pass or can't run. You know what I mean? I, that's what really bothers me because you can't really fix all of that sometimes. You know, if someone really is struggling in distribution, you, you're you forced to minimize their role and miss them out on in possession. And if you can't run over your shoulder, you, it's not coming back, right? So there are things that he does that are so technically good and secure and show such orchestration about him. You just have to remember there are some games when we're only going to see him that's what and it's happened before. It happens a lot in international games. Everything goes through him and there will be some day that's gonna happen for Arsenal. But it didn't happen on this day. But I don't worry too much. I think it's great to have these options. It's great, you know, Smith Rowe was made a major part in this game and he didn't start. You know, most games are won in the last quarter. He didn't start, he ended the game well and 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 that's that's all that matters and we go away with the win, right? So I'm not too worried. I'm not obsessed with starting 11s. I'm obsessed with having good options and being able to solve problems. And I look at this guy and say, yeah, you've got a lot to do and you can do a lot, but I think you've got ability to do it. And so I, I have zero worries. I suppose if I do have a worry, it's, it's the, can you do it against good teams? And can we, as a club, show a bit more maturity in the last third? Because I think sometimes our finishing and shooting options look a bit junior to me on occasion. You know, we just take the wrong option. But maybe that's just this game's in my mind. Let's just focus mm. on the 30 shots and, and then that's a good start, right? We yeah. Go from there. Yeah, look, the one thing that I, I think you can make an argument for, I think you can make an argument for Saka being on the right and Pepe being on the left because the left-sided player has the advantage of Tierney overlapping and can be closer to the box and the right-sided yeah. player has to connect a little more and has more responsible more responsibility to the build-up and, and just technical quality is required and... So I think I think those players I had, could. I had that thought, Elliot, and I thought, hold on, mate, you just we just had the most touches from a Pepe game ever. Do we want to move him straight but, away? But to, to be fair, I mean, if you break this game down, Clive, from mm-hmm. neutral game state to when we're leading, like he had six shots and six chances created, and I think all of them except for one were after we took the lead or Got in it. the move where we took the lead. So, and that, by the way, that's not to diminish it at all. I just think if we're going to play the way we did in the first half a bit more when we're in the four-two-three-one. The right-sided player clearly comes deeper, clearly has more to do in the buildup. The left-sided player, because Tierney goes so far forward, 
gets to be a little point. more central. And, and and again, that that's not a hard and fast rule. That's just what I saw in this game. So I no, I think it's. I do think it's a lot to that. I was having a discussion with somebody online today, and I think that is a debate. And it'd be interesting to see when we do get a chance to flip it, because maybe that guy needs to be more of a a forward. Do you know what I mean? Rather than a, a midfielder, a last pass guy. Do you know? So I, I think it's a lot to that. Yeah. Um, well, we can finish on this, Tim, which is just looking ahead to Burnley. It's a different kind of challenge. Obviously, they're going to probably be a little more combative, um, mm-hmm. is one way, one way of putting it. Uh, they will press us. I'm curious if you think the system we used at the end of the game, where we didn't really have a double pivot, will be the system we start to see more, will become our identity more, or if it's as simple as party's back, we start the game with Sambi and party, and what we did in the second half against Norwich is more of our try-to-win-the-game system, not so much our uh, how-we-start-the-game system. Yeah, I, I still think it'll be like 4-2-3-1. Um, I, I am interested to see, because I do think party will start, um, but I am interested to see who that partner is, because Sambi, you know, Sambi and part party seem quite similar um but then again you know what are the other choices like you know we don't know if El Nenny will be fit Maitland Niles um so that there's probably not a perfect choice in there and you know obviously playing defensive midfield against Burnley um is 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 a different is a different kind of challenge because Burnley they do put you under pressure and not just off the ball by the way they 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 attack um they you know they're not a purely defensive team like they play two strikers they'll attack you um in more ways than one probably um so it's one of those where you you do have to be kind of cognizant of um of Burnley's strengths as well and particularly trying to you know pick up second balls and things like that off of a you know because they'll go long towards Barnes and Wood and you want to be picking up those second balls. I mean, I think Sambi and Party will be fine at that, um, to be honest. But I, I mean, I don't see us doing like a a four three three to start this game. I think at, at the moment, at this stage of our development, that's something Arteta will keep in the back pocket um, as a you know as a potentially like attacking change at nil nil. So if it, if if the game's level with twenty five minutes to go, yeah, I, I think he'll probably do that. But I think. He'll keep that in reserve, and I think that's kind of all right at the moment. I, you know, I, I do think um, how you start and how you finish the game um, are, are just as important as each other. Um, in fact, you could probably say that it's more important how you finish a game because that's usually when games are won and lost. Um, so there, there is something to be said, I think, for just having that to go to. Because if you start like that and Burnley suss it out, it gives you nowhere to go. Um, and you know, there's something to be said for you know bringing someone like Smith Rowe on when everyone's tired and he's running around like the road runner. Um, there, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. So I I don't think what we saw in the last 20 minutes. I mean, it might become our new identity to the extent that it might be something we do with 25 minutes to go when it's nil nil. But I I don't think we'll we'll pivot there there quite yet. But I'd be quite interested to see whether in Arteta's mind that's somewhere that he wants to go eventually. And of course, whether he'll ever have the time to, you know, to whether eventually is um, a timeline that exists for Mikel Arteta is, is obviously a big question as well at the moment. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what he does with like a Lacazette and stuff. This is where not having midweek football gets interesting because like, does Lacazette no just not play? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like Balogun didn't go out on loan 
I don't see how he plays it all this season. He wasn't yeah. in the team. Like, there's going to be some interesting si- and uh, byproducts. That you you want to say something on that, Tim? I, I was just going to say, I think the players with a year left will largely be, I don't want to say frozen out because that sounds too polemic. Um, Overlooked, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. That, that happened to Mustafi, right? When Arteta first came in, he played Mustafi and he talked him up and he said, oh, you know, if he makes mistakes, I, I want to see bravery. Um, then there was a report, we don't know how true it is, that a contract was offered and turned down. And then he never played again, basically. Um, so I, I do think, and the fact that he dropped Leno, uh, you know, I, I do think that there is an, ex- and I think that's fine, by the way. I think that's totally fine, particularly with where we are in quote unquote the project, like to say, okay, your future's not here. Um, that doesn't mean the door is completely closed and you'll never ever play, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into my guys. Um, I, th- I think that's exactly what Arteta should be doing, and I do think we'll see, you know, someone like Lacazette's minutes. I think will will decrease quite a bit. Yeah. Well, Clive, you have any agreement or disagreement with Tim's perspective on? No, what I we'll think he's right, and, and and he needs to you know, he needs to bum some of these people out because what I don't want to see is people just say, "No, nah, I'm not signing a contract," and get all the and get all the perks of playing. No, if you don't sign a contract and you're not committed, or you you do silly things in your personal terms at Crystal Palace, for example, then, mate, you have to wait till I'm ready. You know, and that's what I would do. And you can't make Arsenal an easy place to take to take the Mickey out of like what like we've done in the past. I will say for the Burnley game, and it, I would go a different way. <laughs> I would go, I would go back three. I felt that Norwich really tried to hook it into that right corner, into Tommy Asu and White, and they dealt with it quite well in the air. But Burnley have a couple of monsters up there to, with sharp elbows. So I think I would go back three, and I think Everton have done that tonight as well, and I think that makes a lot of sense, because what you want to do is you want to take away the one thing they can do really quickly. Back three, double pivot, win the second balls, turn around, push their wing, their wide men back, and then sort them out that way and maybe end the game slightly differently. So that's what I would do for, and I would do that for Chelsea. I'd do that for Brentford. I'd do that for most of those teams that play two strikers, you know, or have a, a back three system. And I would use it. And it could be interesting to see what happens, but I wouldn't be against that for this one game. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly see. The season is up and running. And we would absolutely be remiss if we did not mention that Spurs got absolutely shithouse rocked by Crystal Palace. Patty Vieira, what do you think of Tottenham? Shit. What do you think of shit? Tottenham. 3-0. And before you say, well, you know, they did lose a man. Guess how many shots? Uh, Clive, pop quiz. How many shots did Spurs have at halftime when it was still 11-11? Uh, zero. Zero is the correct answer for the man who's never wrong. They had zero shots. <laughs> do you know how many shots they had at halftime against Wolves? Zero. One. It was the penalty. It's their only shot. Mate, I'm, not, I'm not having Spurs. I'm not having them. They suck. Let me tell you something. I'm here to tell you Spurs are awful. They got destroyed by Wolves and got lucky in one, thanks to a penalty. Dive. They got destroyed by Palace while it was 11 v 11 and when it went 11 v 10, and they are getting worse. I bet they are thrilled that they kept Harry Kane instead of taking the money. I know I am. Um, so I look forward to when we face them beat them, and pass them in the table. And that will certainly happen because we are the mighty Arsenal and we are not going to lose another game this season. Does it count? Hey, Tim, real quick, you're the historian. 
since the season technically starts when the window closes, uh, if, if we don't lose again this season, it's an invincible season, right? Uh, absolutely, yes. Okay. No asterisks there. Tim's on Twitter. Shabrata, thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. Live's on Twitter. Clive BFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name is Who the Fuck Cares, and you can block me at you know where. We love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Burnley know. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.